Good morning, Apex. We're so glad to welcome you here today from the worship harvest I have with me today, Moses Mukasa. And he, of course, is the apostle of this network, a dear friend, and someone who has enormously blessed my life and Sally's. We've been here only for a couple of days, and it feels like we've been here a month already because we've seen so many remarkable and incredible things. And I'm going to ask Moses to speak to us initially about the subject of multiplication and growth. Because, of course, as we go to make disciples who make disciples, the objective is multiplication. Moses, would you give us some sense of how it is that the Lord has led you in multiplication? Wow. Thanks so much, uh, Mike. And thanks so much, Apex, for having us there, uh, I mean, via technology. Yeah, first of all, you have been a great influence in all of this because the core organizing space for our church is missional communities. And it all began in 2012 when we were trying to do discipleship and we didn't know what to do when Tim and Rebecca Lindsay, who are known to you, came to Uganda and we connected with them and then they introduced us to your books and your tools and your teachings and 3DM. And then we started. At, at that time, when we started, we had 16 missional communities. Uh, 2012, at that time, we had two campuses. We had planted another church. So we had 16 missional communities in two campuses. Today, we have 1,149 missional communities in 56 campuses. So that's the multiplication that we have seen uh, since 2016. So that has been just, I think, the last... No, since 2012. So that's been the last 10 years. In 10 years, we've gone from 16 MCs to more than 1,000 missional communities with more than 21,000 people being discipled across the 56 locations. Incredible. Incredible. And, of course, you're using missional communities as a vehicle for multiplication. Yeah. But... Give us some sense of how you teach multiplication to the people who are leading the missional communities. Just give us a sense of that. Well, so, of course, uh, Matthew 28, uh, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he said, go therefore, for that reason, go and make disciples and then he says something interesting there, of all the nations. Whereas sometimes we are thinking about our church, our neighborhood, our mission or community, the vision of Jesus is all the nations being disciples. And so we keep that at the front of what we do. Uh, at this church, we like to say that the most significant thing you'll ever do with your life, ever, is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus. It, there's nothing compared to it. 
getting a good marriage doesn't compare to it. Getting children doesn't compare to it. Career growth and promotion doesn't compare to it. Making a lot of money doesn't compare to it. Running for president of the US doesn't compare to it. <laughs> the most significant thing you'll ever do is make disciples. And of course, discipleship helps you scale. Jesus has given us this great gift of carrying his authority. And we are learning from you. We are starting to create our own tools. We have what we call the authority discipleship uh, tool, where you have on one side, you have an, uh, 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 an arrow, like a circular arrow, that is discipleship. And then on the other side, you have authority. And we are saying the purpose of Christ's authority is to make disciples. But, funny thing, the more disciples you make, the more authority you have. Yes. So, if you are, by God's grace, you've made disciples, maybe 10, who have made disciples, maybe 10, who have made disciples, and therefore there are 1,000 people in your discipleship family. They are not all your disciples, but they are disciples of disciples of people you're discipled. Then if the Lord speaks to you to one day and says, I would like a thousand trees planted, you just send a text to your ten disciples and say, please tell your disciples and their disciples that we are all planting a tree this week. And you'll have one thousand trees planted, which I think is a kingdom thing, without you having your own land or your own trees. Or, in other words, you have authority. Sure. If you would like 1,000 wives blessed with a, a, a bouquet of flowers, you just tell your 10 disciples who are men, to also tell all their 10 who are men and married, and then, and then you'll have 1,000 flowers delivered to 1,000 wives in that discipleship stream, which will create a lot of wife joy. <laughs> and yet, in effect, you only delivered yours to your wife, but then you are big. So that, that's what I think authority, yeah, yeah. that's the authority discipleship yeah. thing. And so we have to be very careful about how we use that, actually. Of course. And, uh, and you're using authority there in a way that we might use the word influence. Yeah, influence. Right. Yeah. So. And, and of course, there's lots of examples of that, but I saw that on 9-11 when we saw all of those terrible things happening on our television screens in England. I called my huddle. They called their huddles. They called their huddles. I said, we're going to pray. 400 people came to the church in 30 minutes. We were able to pray. Wow. Similar kind of thing. I've always read that story and marveled. 400 people in 30 minutes for a prayer meeting. <laughs> yes, that's great. So, one of the things that's been very impressive about the work that we see here, and there's so many things that are impressive, the, the community transformation, the work amongst under-resourced young people, it's just incredible. The, the, the overwhelming sense of what God was doing as we went around this, the centers yesterday was just remarkable. But one of the things that I heard one of your leaders say was that you say to them, if you have a problem, find a person. Yes. And it seemed as though that was a key to your leaders not getting burned out. Could you explain to us 
what that all is? Because it seems to be a key to discipleship. Yeah. You said something to us yesterday which started to open our eyes. You said something to the effect that most discipling movement and churches talk about making disciples who make disciples. And then you said that we seem to be doing something unique where we raise leaders who make disciples. Mm -hmm. So we are sort of a learning institution and we are always working on raising our leadership. And so one time it occurred to me that for a true leader, the solution to every problem is a person. It's not you solving the problem. When they ask you, what's going on with this? You have a person. Where is this going? You have a person. You have a person. You have a person. Of course, if the solution to all these issues is a person, it has to be a person you have trained and discipled. You can't just point at a person who actually doesn't know what you're talking about. (laughs) So it's a long-term commitment to building and raising leaders. Uh, John Maxwell says that people are an organization's most appreciable asset. That there is nothing else you'll invest in that will give you more returns in an organization than people. And so we've run with that. So for us, the solution to every challenge is a person. So you find that many of our leaders are doing so many things. Uh, There is someone you talked to yesterday. She's a trained lawyer. She's a wife. Uh, She has children. She's a zonal pastor. She runs a business of a restaurant. She has a pig farm. She has a goat farm. Goat farm. And I think she might be here. And a chicken farm. Uh, And a chicken farm. (laughs) Tasha. So you think, how does she do all of that? And that's common with all our leaders here. Most of our pastors run businesses. Mm -hmm. But you see them the whole time. So you have to think, how do their businesses run? Of course, there are people they have employed to help them run the businesses. And so, yeah. Yeah, very, very good. And it's so practically obvious that that's what's going on. Now, one of the other things that I think is um, enormously important and um, something that I think is a, a major challenge to the Western church is the way in which men and women fill leadership roles here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of any church I've worked with and I've worked with thousands of churches that I see as many empowered women, women who have been given a voice and women, women who quite honestly are doing kingdom work I mean, in a way that is compelling and triumphant and remarkable. Mm. And um, it's quite clear that within the matrix of leadership, you value women's leadership in a way that I do not see in most Western churches. I'd like you just to comment on that and give us some, some sense of how God led you in that direction. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think even as you talk, I'm having a Kairos sort of moment. 
and because I'm trying to think, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. uh, one part that I've thought through before is when we started the church, we were all young. Yeah. Most of the people were not married. Um, my wife and I, we were married at the time. But because we were so young and we felt that this church would just feel lost, we decided we would lead, whoever was married, we would lead together as couples. Mm -hmm. So it, it has always been husband and wife. Now, in our situation, it's funny when we go to other places and people are introducing themselves, they think that the wives, that the ladies are just the wives of the pastors. They don't know that in most cases in our environment, the ladies are the pastors yeah. and the husbands, the gentlemen are the husbands of the pastors. So we, we always try to explain it or just sometimes let, let them misunderstand it because it's hard, so hard to explain. Sure. That even where we have a couple, many times the lady is the lead yeah. pastor of the church, of the location, and then the husband is like the helpmate, mm -hmm. kind of. Kind of supporting by providing income for the family and Yeah, and, and, and leading at the church because they are not passive of uh, like yeah. pastors. Now, the way it happened is that w because we are leading as couples and as the churches grew, at some point we needed one of the two to come on board on staff. Yeah. And usually it was easier for the wife to be the one to quit her job and come on staff because the husband was providing the bigger income and sure. the greater support to the family. So as these women kept quitting their jobs and coming on staff, they came into a very high learning culture. They came into a culture where you're always growing, being given all sorts of challenges. And so that's how they started growing very fast mm -hmm. uh, to the point that now we, we started needing to balance the boat a bit and get the guys also moving because sure. Many cases we felt like the women were ahead of the, mm -hmm. the men in terms of just personal growth and influence and mm -hmm. ministry and all of that. But as we talked about it here, I got a Kairos and I will share it if you don't mind. When I was eight years old, huh. my dad was shot dead mm. and there were six of us and I'm the last. Now, it was left up to my mom to raise us. So I think I grew up in a home where the person primarily responsible for the success of everyone was a woman. So I've never had any issues with having sure. women in charge, sure. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I think, I think that, that that careful observation of how leadership works in a home and that careful observation of how the systems within our society either restrict or give opportunity has been tremendously important and I'm sure that we need to do the same thing within our own context. Perhaps if we could conclude with just sharing with us what you think is the secret source that maybe nobody would see when they come to a church like this. What is there that's going on behind the scenes that nobody would know about? They can see the multiplication of groups. I mean, I, I went with you yesterday. There's the, a young woman who's a widow. She starts a missional community. It becomes a congregation. 
the congregation is so vital and vibrant, reaching young girls, young boys, teenagers, young adults, that it becomes an NGO, and it's a self-sustaining ministry movement of its own now. Incredible. And that's just one example of many, many that, we, we, that we've been told about. What's the secret source? Now, there may not be, you may not be able to give us all of the ingredients to Colonel Saunders' recipe, <laughs> because, because maybe some of them you don't know, or maybe some yeah. of them, you know. But if somebody was to come here and say, what goes on behind the scenes that makes the difference? What do you think it is? Wow, that's a, a great question. Maybe I would think about three things. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is, we, we like to say, put a 10 on their heads. We pick that from John Maxwell. When you see the person, put a 10 on their head. Don't put a two out of 10. Don't look at them and say, I can't do it. Give yourself room for disappointment. Always start with, they will do it. Then when they fail, uh, improve, restart. But always put it on their heads. I think that has been helpful. Mm. Because when we started, we were all so young, untrained, never been to seminary, just students or recent graduates. So we have always had that sense of no one is qualified around here. Everyone gets a chance. And then we see what you can do with it. So I think that's one of them. So there's a lot of room for failure. Yeah. And we've had some catastrophic ones. But to get some of the success we have, we have to embrace that. Yeah. So, so success is coming through failure. The, the, the great the great things that you see come via a path of disappointment, but you don't begin with the expectation of disappointment. Yeah. You begin with a process of giving everybody the, the chance to fly as if they're a 10 rather than a two. Yes, totally. Okay. That's tremendous. And, and without limiting. We don't say, yeah. oh, had a leader. No. We have had people lead locations or campuses within their first year of salvation. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. the person received Christ, is being discipled, and before their first anniversary of being saved, they are becoming a pastor. Yeah. That's tremendous, isn't so it? So that's, yeah, we, we like to live on the yeah. that young That young former Muslim Young man, yeah. healed of cancer, yes. starting a missional community, what, a year after his salvation? Something yep. like that. Yeah, very good. So that's one. One. The other two would be friendship. Uh, some of the people we work with, we've been friends for close to 20 years. Mm. We've always been together. Yeah. We've gone through all the fights and reconciled. I mean, we just know each other's strengths, weaknesses, name it, and no one is trying to pretend to be, yeah, <laughs> no, that thing. Nobody's pretending to be perfect. No, no. So we, we, we are very relational. We are very relational ministry. Uh, it's just very relational. 
and I, I, I feel, I get a sense, maybe you have seen, get, got a sense of that. No, nothing like that. And then the third, which is related but very interesting, which has come into play in the last two, maybe and a half years, is a culture of honor. Yes. Now, I think like that's something people in the West struggle with a lot. And we also struggled with it a lot, but we embraced it. And it is this careful balance of friendship and leadership of my, my friends that I lead with recognize me as their leader and they treat me a certain way, even as we are friends, which makes it easier. They are not asking me to prove myself to lead them. They have decidedly decided to honor me as their leader, uh, even in the midst of the friendship. And so we, practice, we have started practicing a lot of the culture of honor, uh, both the people who are led honoring the people who lead them and the people who lead honoring the people who they lead. Because mm -hmm. Jesus said that his father honors him. Mm. So honor is not, is not one way. Sure. It's both ways. So that, that, looking at a person and thinking, there is a lot more to this person than I see. This person carries certain gifts, like uh, treasure in earthen vessels. I think that would be the best description of it. Yeah. I'm seeing this person, but there is a treasure from heaven in them. And if I do not treat them a certain way, I will never be able to tap into that treasure. Yeah. That's tremendous. I, um, I was reflecting on the culture of honor and the kind of intersecting ideas yesterday as I was just um, talking to Sally and reflecting with a few friends back in Dayton. And I said, I've not seen a church yet where I didn't feel uncomfortable when people started talking about a culture of honor because I'm sure that there are many where I wouldn't feel uncomfortable, but the places that I've encountered, it feels a little bit manipulative. Yeah. And it feels as though it's basically investing in an established hierarchy. Yeah. What I see here is something quite different. And what you just said there about treasure in earthen vessels really was the thing that I was revolving around in my heart and mind because I think that what I'm learning here is that you operate as a learner. That every person that you meet, you're assuming that Jesus is gonna be able to teach you something from them, and so you honor Christ in them. Yes. And so the honor culture is really similar to something that St. Francis of Assisi would have said, and of course is something that Jesus himself says, that when you do this for the least of these, yeah. you do it unto me. Yes. So what you're doing, I think, is identifying a kind of spiritual relationship that recognizes that Christ is working in the other, and in that you honor Christ in the other. Yeah. And therefore, of course, you teach that and it returns to you. Yeah. So that's something that I think I've learned since I've been here. I think that one of my problems, confession time, is that I'm often put in the role of the expert. I'm often put in the role of the teacher. 
And if you're in the role of the teacher, it's hard to be a learner. And of course, you can't be a disciple without being a learner because disciple means learner. Learner, yeah. So being a disciple who's finding Jesus in the people around you and learning from them, I think that's been one of the things that I've really, really received since I've been here. So thank you for that. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. So, those of you back home, this is Moses. You're going to see him again. I've already started negotiating with him and Sarah, his wife, for them to come and teach us at a learning community next year. In, in faith, we'll take it on. If nobody else wants to do it at Apex, I'm going to do it. But I'm sure that everybody wants wants to see and experience and understand not only what Moses and Sarah can bring to us, but what members of their team can bring to us as we learn to find Christ in one another. And as we do that, learn what it is that Jesus is teaching people like Moses who are extending the kingdom in a way that is unrivaled and really unprecedented. It's been a great pleasure to be here, my brother. Thank it's been you. incredibly, incredibly challenging, incredibly humbling. You have been so honoring. I've been taken around the Breen Cafe today. Yeah. Which, <laughs> which is undoubtedly the greatest honor of my life so far. I was so blessed by that, thank you. And, um, and it's really been a very special time. So for those of you back home, look forward to not only hearing from these dear friends again, but I think we need to build a bridge. Yeah. We need to build a bridge between the missional movement in the United States and the missional movement here, because there's so much that we can receive. And frankly, those of us in America, we're gonna be mostly on the receiving end, and it's gonna be awesome. So we'll be seeing a lot more of this as the days and the months and the years unfold. Bless you, and I trust that you'll have a great day, and we'll see you soon.